15 years ago this December, I learned a very important lesson, one that has stuck with me since that time. It was a mistake I've never made again. The lesson I learned was you need to be ready to board. You need to be ready to board. Here's what happened. I was a senior at Duke University. I was heading down from uh, early on Christmas break in December, right before the beginning of the new year. And I was flying back down to Durham because I was catching a flight. A choir that I was singing in was going on a concert tour of Spain. And so we needed to catch a flight, go all the way over to Europe and sing. And I was a part of this choir. I caught my first flight from Minneapolis. I I can't even remember where. It might have been Cincinnati. It might have been Charlotte. I don't remember exactly. And I got in, and there was probably an hour and a half layover, something along those lines. And so I went and plopped down at a gate, and I kicked my feet up, and I was on my laptop, and I was sleeping a little bit, and I, I was just relaxing. And suddenly I thought, you know, I wonder what time my plane's leaving. I'm right here at the gate. I haven't heard any announcements. I haven't heard anything. There are people sitting around me waiting to. And then I looked. And I said, oh, I'm not sitting at the right gate, am I? I'm not sitting at the gate what my plane is leaving. My gate is just across. And there's no one sitting there anymore. And I hustle up to the gate agent. And I said, What's going on? She said, I'm sorry, the door just closed. I wasn't ready to board. And that was a problem. Well, thankfully, there was another flight, another way that got me to Durham, North Carolina. I was able to get there on time, and I did not ultimately miss anything about my trip to Spain, and I had a good time. Now, why do I start there? Because I was reminded of this passage when thinking of the last words of the Apostle Paul, at least that we have recorded in Scripture here. It is the common view that 2 Timothy was the last book that Paul ever wrote, the last epistle, the last letter that he ever wrote. He was writing it to his protege, the one that he had brought to faith, the one that he had mentored in the faith, the one that he had trained to take on care over the churches that Paul himself had brought to Jesus Christ, a man named Timothy, his son in the faith. This is Paul's final words to his son in the faith, Timothy. And this chapter, if you look with me here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, begins with a sober charge. I charge you. The idea is of almost a legal charge. Like, I am putting you under oath. I am adjuring you. I am exhorting you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. He's telling Timothy how Timothy needs to act. Because Paul knows something about himself. Will you look with me at verse number six? For I am now ready to be offered. This is a very poignant 
phrase. I am now ready to be offered. The Greek, in the Greek for offered there, it has the idea literally of being poured out as an offering, a drink offering. It would be in the Roman terms, they would take cup, a cup of wine, and they would pour it out as an offering to their pagan deity. It was an offering of a beverage. It was a drink offering. And Paul is saying, I am now already, that's the idea, I'm already being poured out as an offering to God. And notice what he says. And the time of my departure is at hand. The word departure there literally means to unloose. The picture, scholars tell us, is that sailors would use this term when they talked about unloosing the ropes They were tied to the dock. It was time to depart. And this Greek word literally signifies unloosing the ropes and the ship is going off to sea. Isn't that a poignant phrase? What's Paul saying? He's saying, I'm about to die. I'm about to die. Paul knew that. He knew that. You say, how did he know that? Well, God undoubtedly had revealed it to him, but his circumstances probably suggested it just as much. We see here in this passage, in this book, that Paul is imprisoned. He's in chains. He's cold because he's in a jail. He asked Timothy, bring my my cloak, bring my heavy coat. I'm cold. And he is going to be standing before the emperor. Which emperor? Nero. The infamous Nero who killed, who ordered the, the, the destruction of a countless number of Christians persecuting them. Paul knew that he was leaving, that he would be gone. But here's what he said. The time of my unloosing, my departure. Here's what he's saying. It's time to board. It's time to board the ship. It's departing. It's leaving. And here is the lesson for us. You and I have a time to depart. You and I have a time when the ship of our departure is leaving. You and I have a time to board the plane. And sometime soon, you and I will be called to that gate. Your name will be called. That lesson has been poignant on my heart this week. Because as we think about our brother Ron, I told someone if there had been one 64-year-old that I would have said, They're not going to be claimed by COVID. It's not their time of departure. It would have been him. And yet God saw fit that it was the time for him to unloose. It was the time for him to depart. He was ready to be poured out as an offering to God. And the reason this has been so poignant to me is because I've realized and it's become my conviction only more that one of my fundamental jobs as a pastor is to make you ready for your departure. It is to prepare you for the time when you are called to board that plane, when you are called to board that ship. You say, well, that's not relevant to me. That might be relevant to someone who's older than I am or who's more feeble or infirm than I am. And I would say, no. We could bring out countless stories of those whose departure has been far earlier than they ever would have expected. You see, why do I say that? It is because it is one of the great encouragements of the Christian faith for a Christian to die well. 
to approach the time of their departure with peace and joy and stability. Billy Graham said, I have talked to doctors and nurses who have held the hands of dying people and they say that there is as much difference between the death of a Christian and a non-Christian as there is between heaven and hell. It's my job to prepare you for the time of your departure in full recognition that that could come far sooner than you could ever anticipate sitting here today. The title of the message this morning is very simply, When Your Time Comes. When Your Time Comes. And I want to say this morning, does this sound a little bit morbid? Perhaps, but it's really, I'm convinced, it's essential. It's important. Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. The house of grieving than the house of celebrating. It's better to go to the funeral than it is to go to the wild party. It is better to go to those who are suffering than those who are exalting. Why? Because he says, the living will lay it to heart. The living will lay it to heart. So this morning, let's look ahead to the time when your name and my name will be called to board. And by God's grace, may we be ready to board. First of all, I want us to see here Paul's awareness. Paul's awareness, and it is an awareness that all of us Need. Go back again, will you, to chapter 4 here and verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered, as we sort poured out as a drink offering. I'm ready. And the time of my departure, my unloosing, my ship getting ready to pull off, it's at hand. It has come. It's here. In fact, this entire book, you see Paul summoning Timothy. He says, Timothy, come see me one more time. Come here. I'm ready to go. Bring my coat, bring my cloak. Notice these words he says in verse 16 of this chapter. He says, at my first answer, no man stood with me. You say, what's that? That word answer is literally when he was indicted, when he was brought to court. Imagine this picture. Paul, the great apostle, the one who had done so much for the gospel, is arrested. He appears in court for the first time. And what is his testimony looking back? No one stood with me. No one stood with me, but all men forsook me. They abandoned me. You said, not Paul. He had done too much for God. No, that was his testimony. Listen to what he says. Was he bitter about it? I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. God, don't hold it against them. Don't hold it against them that they abandoned me, that they left me behind, that they left me to suffer this alone. Notice what he says. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. May I just say as an aside, When you're abandoned, when friends let you down, when friends aren't there for you, when you you really need it, God will stand by you and strengthen you, and you don't need to hold it against them. You may say with Paul, I pray God that it wouldn't be laid to their charge. But notice again this sense that Paul has. He knows he's in jail. He's cold. He's suffering. He's feeling alone. He's feeling he has felt abandoned. And he looks ahead and he says, I've heard my name. It's time to board. The time of my departure is at hand. You know, friends, the simple point is this. There is a time that all of us will board that airplane will board that ship. 
the time of our departure, there is a time. We know this in the book of Hebrews. We're told it is appointed unto men once to die. And after this, what? The judgment. It is appointed unto men. Now, friends, some of you may be around when Jesus returns. I don't know whether that will be the case or not. But if he tarries, it will be appointed to you. There is a time when your name will be called to board and there, you will have no power in the matter. There will be nothing more that can be done. It will be time for you to depart. Will you turn over to Psalm number 90 with me? Again, we live in a society that wants to think nothing about death. We never want to be reminded of our mortality. We say, oh, that's dark. That's morbid. I don't want to focus on that. I don't want to think about the time of my departure. I'd rather just pretend that it will never come. And we see millionaires and celebrities doing everything in their power to extend their lives, to fight back against the ravages of time, to make themselves appear decades younger than they than they know they actually are. Why? Because we are fighting and fighting and fighting against that day. But that's not a biblical approach. It's not a scriptural view of life. Look at Psalm number 90. This is called a prayer of Moses, the man of God. He says in verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Now notice what he says. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, return ye children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, just like one day when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Listen to what he says of these humans that God has made. Thou carriest them away as with a flood, Just like a flood of waters, they are swept away like a leaf being carried away in a river. They are as asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up, just like a weed which grows up one morning. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withereth. Notice in verse 10, he says, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. A score is 20 years, so that's 70 years. He says, our years are 70 years. And that's not a bad life estimate of a lifespan, we know, for human beings. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, 80 years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Oh, if we could just apply that to ourselves, we would say, I am soon cut off and I fly away. If I live to 70 or 80 or 90 or 100, it is still just a brief moment Notice what then he says in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. So teach us to. That's suggesting it's not something we're naturally going to do. We're not naturally going to number out our days and say, God, you know how short my life is. You know how frail my body is. My times, as the psalmist says, are in your hand. They're not in my hand. Teach me to number my days that I may apply my heart unto wisdom. You see, wisdom is saying that you and I are not going to last long here on this earth. Wisdom is recognizing that time is short. Wisdom is recognizing that there is an eternity ahead of us that is coming far sooner than you and I ever would like to believe. And no matter how many days are left that are numbered out to you, They will go like this, and you will hear your name called. 
and you will report for boarding. Friends, I'm not being morbid here. I'm simply saying we need to teach, be taught to apply our hearts to wisdom. We need to be taught to number our days and to recognize that time is short and none of us can ultimately keep alive our own lives. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 39. He said, Lord, make me to know mine end. Make me. I don't know my end on my own. You make me to know mine end. And the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. That's wisdom. God, I'm frail. You are the one who holds my life. You are the one who knows my times. My days are in your hand. Paul was aware of that. And he knew that the time had come. His days were very short And he soon would go. Paul was right about that. Church tradition says that Paul was beheaded under Nero. And if you can think about just the poignance of one of the greatest saints who have ever lived with his head on a Roman chopping block, waiting for the fall of that axe, that is how one of the greatest saints went into eternity. And here he sits and says to Timothy in his final letter, Timothy, I've heard my name called for boarding. So that's Paul's awareness, and may it be ours. It is a certainty of the brevity of our life. But notice, secondly, Paul's assurance. This is what I love about this passage. His assurance as he looked ahead to what was inevitably coming for him comes out in verse 7. Will you look at it with me? I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth. What does that word henceforth means? In the future, from this point forward. Henceforth. From today, I am expecting. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. I want you to see there are two perspectives that Paul has there. One is looking back, and one is looking forward. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. It's looking back. Henceforth, looking forward, there is a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Looking back and looking forward. Friends, do you know what will enable you to live well, to die well? If you can look back like Paul did, and you can look forward like Paul did. That was his assurance. What was his assurance looking back? I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. You say, that's some real confidence there. Could I say that? This isn't Paul's pride speaking. This isn't Paul's boasting speaking. This isn't a man looking back who says, well, thank goodness I have no regrets. I have nothing that even I could possibly regret. We see all over the epistles Paul saying, The grace of God was so significant to me because I can't believe I'm even saved. I'm the chief of sinners. Why? Because before I came to Christ, I persecuted 
the church of Christ. I put them to death. I brought them to imprisonment. I was standing there holding the belongings of those who were stoning Stephen, the martyr of the early church. No, this isn't just boasting from Paul. This is the quiet, confident assurance of one who looked back and said, no matter how imperfectly, I fought. I've run. I've kept. Notice each of these pictures. I have fought a good fight. Literally, the idea there is I have struggled a good struggle. The picture here is maybe a wrestling match. It's any kind of contest involving an opponent, an enemy. And think of it, if you've ever seen a wrestling match, they say that wrestling is probably the hardest sport that you can do, the most intense activity that you can perform. Because it involves every single muscle group that you have, every single bit of lung capacity that you have. There probably are not athletes that are better conditioned than wrestlers, maybe swimmers, but right up there. And if you can imagine a wrestler striving with every fiber of his body against his opponent, now think about that picture and Paul saying, I have struggled, I have strived, I have fought a good fight. What's he saying? He's saying the Christian life is a battle. It's a struggle. It's a striving. It's a wrestling match. You say, who am I wrestling? Well, we saw it at our last baptism service when each of those who went up pledged to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. To fight the good fight against our flesh, which continually is warring against our soul. It is warring against our soul because it is seeking to use our own desires to lead us off the path that God has for us. God says your desires are good things. I have made them for you. I have given them to you. And if they are used out of control, they will destroy you. You say, well, what does that mean? I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize it for you very simply. If you were to ask me, Peter, are you in favor of fires? I would say I'm in favor of fires. Fires are wonderful things. As long as they're in a fireplace. Fires are great in fireplaces. They're great in, in, in furnaces. They're great in gas grills. They're really bad in houses. They're really bad in forests. They're really destructive. And when you think about the desires that you and I have, the bodily desires to eat, to procreate, to sleep, to, to engage in competitive activity, whatever it is, whatever desire you have, those desires are good in a fireplace where God has given them to be channeled in a productive purpose. And when they escape and when you don't follow the path that God has for you, when you don't control them for productive purposes, they are incredibly destructive. No, God is not against any of these natural desires. He says, I've given them for a good purpose. So keep them in the fireplace that I have designed for them. Paul says, I strove, I fought against my desires. He said, I keep under my body. I keep it in subjection. It is my slave. It is not my master. To strive a good striving is to wrestle against your own desires and to channel them in the path that God has called you to. 
William Borden, called Borden of Yale, a great example, we'll talk about him in just a moment, was a man who was reported to have said in his own personal journal, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Fighting a good fight. Not only though against the flesh, what else? Against the world. No, we're not out to destroy the world. We are not violent extremists. No, we are exactly the opposite. What does it mean then to fight against the world? It is to recognize that the entire world system is seeking to conform you to its image, to its mold. It is seeking to destroy you. It is seeking to turn you away from the things of God, from the love of God, from your communion and your relationship with God. It is seeking to squeeze you by saying, come be just like us. Come give yourselves to your lusts. Come give yourselves to your desires. Come pursue what we are pursuing. Our entire system is set up like that. And so therefore to fight a good fight is to fight, is to push back against its desire, the world's desire to conform you into its image. James 4 tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because we cannot love the world system and what it promotes and at the same time, have a love and loyalty to our God who has saved us from this system, who has saved us from this conformity, who has saved us from the God of this world. And that's why he says not only is our fight against our flesh inwardly, not only against the world system under the domination of the evil one, it is against the evil one himself. We fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are in a warfare against him, as Paul said in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes, the strategies of the devil. Now think about Paul. I have fought a good fight. I have pressed toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus as Kevin began our service this morning. But not only had done that, he said, I have finished my course. We've talked about the race of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 going into Hebrews 12. And Paul looks back and he said, I've run it and there's a finish line in sight. The time of my departure is at hand. I finished that course. I finished what God put in front of me. How's your race going? How is your path doing? But he also said, I have kept the faith. Oh, what a big deal this was to Paul. He had received a deposit of truth. He had received the truths of the gospel. And now looking back, he says, saying, by God's grace, I've kept them. I've held onto it. It is a precious deposit that God gave to me. And I have kept it locked in the safe. It's still there. I've held onto it. I haven't given up. Friend, do you know what a comfort it will be to you when the time of your departure comes that you would be able to look back with Paul and not boasting, not pridefully, simply say, I fought a good fight. I fought against my flesh. 
As best as I knew how, I attempted to say yes to Jesus and no to self every time. I fought. I fought a good fight against the world. I didn't want to be worldly. I didn't want to be conformed to this world. I wanted to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And I fought against the devil. I strove to put my armor on. I fought a good fight. I finished, I ran the race of faith that God had in front of me through all the hills and all the valleys, all the ups, all the downs, all the days of sunshine and all the days of clouds and rain. As best I knew, I ran a good race. And by God's grace, I kept the faith. I held to the truths of the gospel. I stood on the truths of this book. Friends, what a comfort that will be in one day when you do not need to look back with all the regrets of all the what could have beens, of all the what should have beens, looking back with the simple confidence that the race that God had for you was the race that you ran. But notice where this leads, not only looking back, but notice then looking forward. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. What is he saying when he looks forward? There's no lack of assurance. He's not saying, I hope there's a crown for me. I wonder whether there is a crown for me. He says, there is laid up for me. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You say, what is this crown of righteousness? I think what he's talking about here is it's a crown of righteousness. It's a crown that is righteousness. The word that he uses here for crown in the Greek is the word that's the victor's crown. It's the crown that someone gets when they finish the race. It's the crowd that crown that someone gets when they win the race. It was something, someone winning the marathon and The crown, probably of just green, greenery being placed on their head. And Paul said, that crown that is righteousness, the righteousness of God is going to be placed on my head at that day. Now, it might be easy for you to say, well, that's Paul. He was pretty special. We're no Paul. We didn't live our life like he did. Is that just some special crown for Paul? Is that just some like super saint type of crown? What about the crown for us normal saints, for us normal people? Paul wants to assure you of that. Notice what comes next. The Lord is going to give him this crown at that day and not to me only. Now, would you read this next phrase out loud with me? Read it now. But unto all them also that love his appearing. Who's that crown for? Super saints? Special missionaries? People who have done great things for God? No. It's for you. You say, what do you mean for me? Why does he say to those that love his appearing? Is he talking about special saints? 
No, he's talking about normal ones. He is assuming that each Christian is going to be loving the appearing of Jesus Christ, is going to be waiting for it, is going to be eagerly expecting it. You say, what do you mean? Have you ever been to the airport? Have you ever been to the airport to pick up a loved one? That airplane comes in, they say, my flight is getting in at this time. And you pull up the car and it's someone you love. And your heart is fluttering a little bit. And you can't wait. Maybe you even park the car and go in and wait at the baggage claim the first time they can come out and see them. And they walk out and you give them a big hug. And you say, I missed you so much. I'm so glad to see you. You love someone's appearing. And Paul is assuming here, I don't think, I really don't believe he's trying to say this is for some special people. This is some special reward for people who love his appearing. I think he's saying this, this is for Christians because all of us should love his appearing. And you say, well, what if, what if that love, I, I'm not feeling it. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I am saying it's characteristic of Christians to love his appearing. We see that even in the book of Hebrews, Scripture tells us that Jesus is coming. He's returning the second time without sin unto salvation. And it says these are the people he's appearing for. Those who look for him. Do you know what that word look is? It has the idea of eagerly waiting, like our eyes up in the clouds and waiting for him to come back. Who's Jesus coming for? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. Again, is he talking about some special class of Christians? No, he's talking about what he understands Christians to be who walk by faith. They look up. They say, Jesus, I'm going to see you someday and I hope it's soon. How does our Bible end? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly. We love his appearing. We are eagerly waiting for him to return. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying there's a crown of righteousness that the righteous judge, don't miss that, the righteous judge is going to give me a crown of righteousness. And he says, it's not only for me, it's to everyone who loves his appearing. Do you know what the anchor, do you know what an anchor of your soul will be when you hear your name ready to board? It will be when you can look back and say, By God's grace, I fought, I ran, I kept. And when you can look forward and say, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which that righteous judge will give me. Look back, look forward. And this ultimately is where I want to leave you, not just with Paul's awareness, not just with his assurance, but with his admonition. You see, if we're going to understand this very famous passage in context, we're going to need to see what message he's really sending to Timothy. Will you look with me at verse number six? What's the very first word of verse number six? Four. Now, I hope if I've trained you well here, you know that when there is a four, you should ask what the four is there for. 
Okay? When you see a for, when you see because, when you say therefore, you should say, what's he trying to say? Here's what he's trying to say. Notice what he's just said in verse 5. He says, but Timothy, you watch in all things. You endure afflictions. You do the work of an evangelist and you make full proof of your ministry. You fulfill your ministry. You fill it up to the brim. You do what I've called you to do. Why? Because I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. Do you see what he's saying? Timothy, I'm leaving. I'm boarding this airplane. I'm getting on this ship. And the ropes are about to be unloosed. But Timothy, you're not yet. So Timothy, you watch in all things. You endure affliction. You do the work of an evangelist. You make full proof of your ministry. In other words, the whole point of what Paul is saying is not some prideful boast. It is an encouragement. It is an exhortation. It is an admonition to say, Timothy, you live well. How can you be assured that when that day comes, you can say, I have fought a good fight by living well today? How can you be assured by at that, at that day that you will be able to say, I have finished my course by running your course today well? How can you be assured when you get to that day that you will be able to say, I have kept the faith by keeping the faith now? You see, friends, the secret to dying well is living well. The secret to standing with confidence at the end of your life is by living in confidence and in trust in Jesus Christ today and tomorrow and the day after. I plead with you, friends, don't be among those that say, I will live my life for self now and I will have time at the end to make it right with God. I will give in to my desires now. I will live for myself now and I will have time to change later. Do not, friends, you never know when your name is going to be called. Fight the good fight today. Run the course that God has put in front of you today with everything you have. And keep the faith. Keep the truth. Hold the truth that God has given you today. And by God's grace, when you just endure, fighting the good fight, finishing the course, and keeping the faith day after day, you'll stand at the end one day when your name is called. And you'll be able to look back and say, that was me. And there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. You see, there's two contrasts in this passage. There's not only the admonition that Paul gives to Timothy. There's also the very sad contrast. Notice what we see in verse 9. Paul says, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica. Two young men. One, Paul is saying, hold on. Do what God has called you to do today. Live well. And another, the last thing we read of him in scripture is he loved this present world and he departed. Will we see Demas in God's kingdom? I don't know. But there's certainly reason to be concerned that we won't. I don't know. But friends, the simple point is, today, 
Will you be Timothy or will you be Demas? Will you fulfill the calling by fighting the good fight, whatever it is that God has put in front of you against your flesh, against the world and the devil? Will you run the race that God has put in front of you today patiently and by faith? Will you keep the truth that he has put in front of you? Or will you love this present world and depart, perhaps never to return? I mentioned earlier in this message, William Borden. William Borden was a young man who was the heir of a multi-million dollar business estate, right in the turn of the, ni- of, the, of, the, of the 20th century, right? Just around the 1900s. William Borden was brought to Christ. William Borden went to Yale University, of course, one of the premier colleges in our day. William Borden was living such a vital Christian life that he almost single-handedly transformed the Yale campus. It is said of him that he began a time of prayer and Bible study that went from having 150 students on that campus attending to at one time, if if what I read is correctly, over a 1,000 or so students of about a 1,350-person campus were meeting for prayer and Bible study and Bible study together. William Borden was struck that he needed to go be a missionary to essentially abandon, turn his back on this business empire uh, of the Borden family, turn his back on his millions of dollars and go to be a witness for the gospel to the Uyghur Muslims. We've heard about them in the news recently in China. And at 25 years old, having been trained to go to the mission field, William Borden went uh, uh, went, went to learn Arabic in Egypt. He contracted spinal meningitis and he died without ever reaching the mission field at 25 years old. And his, his, the news of his death was greeted with shock and sorrow here in the United States. And there's an old story about him. I don't know whether it's true or not. It's been told often repeated about him that his mother, after he died, found his Bible and that inscripted in that Bible was three phrases. The first one was no reserves. A multimillionaire coming into a fortune saying, there are no reserves. The second one was no retreats. I'm not turning back. And the third one was no regrets. No reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. And whether that story is apocryphal or not, it so wonderfully captures what Paul is saying here. And I hope one day you will be able to say, no reserves. I fought a good fight with everything I had. No retreats. I finished my course. No turning back. No regrets. I have kept the faith. Do you know what a wonderful encouragement it was to see that our friend Ron died well. He died well. You should have seen him when I had a chance to talk to him. He was his same self, weakened, still cracking jokes, still making people laugh around him. That was Ron, even to the very end. Ron was the guy who had the strong faith. I can testify to it, talking to him at the hospital. He wasn't anxious. He wasn't fearful. He was just trusting. He was confident. He knew in whose hands he rested. Ron died well. 
and the wonderful times I know that he had with Stacy were such a wonderful thing to see their marriage. Just You should have heard the things that Ron was saying about Stacy, recognizing what a prize he had in her, what a gift he had been given. That was him. He died well. And my encouragement to you today is simply this. The time of your departure is going to come. There's going to be a time when you are called to board. Won't you focus today on fighting a good fight, on running a race that is set before you, on keeping the faith, so that when it comes to dying well, you already will have been prepared by living well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the examples that we have. Thank you for the example of a man like Paul who just was able to testify when the time of his departure came, he had fought a good fight. He had finished that course. He had kept the faith. Father, thank you for Ron and for his testimony. Thank you that he died well as an example to us. Father, help us to live well today. Help us not to be a Demas, loving this present world and departing. Father, fix our eyes on the fight that is in front of us today. You know where, each, where that battle will be pitched today. You know where the struggle needs to be directed today against our flesh, against the world, and against the devil. It may be different for each one of us, but the fight is the same. Father, fix our eyes on the course that you have put in front of us. You have put in front of us. Fix our eyes, Lord, on the truth that is ours to keep. But above all, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who fought a good fight and finished his course and kept the faith. Father, thank you that there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give us at that day. And as we pause with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, friends, do you know that there is a crown of righteousness laid up for you? Do you love Jesus? Have you trusted in him for your eternal life? Have you recognized that only in him is your salvation? If you have any question about that today, I'd love to talk to you about that on the way out. And for those of you who know there's a crown of righteousness laid up for you, what about your fight needs to change today? What about your race? What about the calling that God has for you? No reserves, no retreats, no regrets.